Right now, though, we are starting with a story that comes to us from the Federal Privacy Commissioner, the Federal Privacy Watchdog, ruling that the RCMP in Canada broke the law by using facial recognition software, using that software and that information gathered by a U.S.-based company. Well, Anne Kavukian is joining me on the line now. Anne is the Executive Director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre, also a former Information and Privacy Commissioner in Ontario. And thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. What is your reaction in the report, the findings from the Privacy Commissioner, that there were big failings when it came to the RCMP using uh, facial recognition technology, uh, this uh, provided by that U.S. firm, Clearview AI? Oh, I applaud the Federal Privacy Commissioner. He nailed it. because It is appalling what Clearview AI has been doing for some time. And the fact that the RCMP was using their services clearly in violation of the Privacy Act. I mean, Clearview AI has been scraping facial images from online sources, 3.3 billion for the last count, um, without people's consent or giving them notice or anything. And here's the RCMP using Clearview AI and using those facial images. And it is appalling that they would be doing that. Were you surprised at all that they were using that? I won't say surprise because you know, all kinds of activities take place that um, result in mass surveillance. But I was surprised at the extent to which they they scraped facial images from everywhere, Facebook, YouTube, I mean, everywhere. And the fact that uh, people weren't rising up, they just didn't know what to do with Clearview AI. So I'm delighted that the federal commissioner, Daniel Terrien, came and, and just floored them and said, this is absurd. It's resulting in mass surveillance. They're scraping billions of images from people across the Internet, and they're violating Canadians' privacy rights. Uh, one of the findings from the Privacy Commissioner saying a government institution cannot collect personal information from a third-party agent if that third-party agent collected the information unlawfully. Uh, is it unlawful then with yes. Canadian laws then because they're doing it without consent or without people knowing about it? What specifically makes it unlawful? That's right. Well, privacy is all about control, the personal control over the use and disclosure of your personal information. And there's nothing more sensitive than your facial image, which can be used for a variety of purposes. So clearly, there had been no notice, no consent, no nothing. These were just scraped, literally, off of various um, databases like Facebook, etc. And no one was giving notice that their images were being used in this way. And it just creates an outrageous floor of surveillance um, that most people are not aware of. Uh, this is also a, a company that's been in the news before for, for, again, doing this without consent. How concerned should Canadians be that this is happening or this continues to happen? I, well, first of all, they should be delighted with the commissioner's findings because basically the RCMP will no longer be permitted to do this. And, you know, they, they should have known that all along, um, that they weren't using this legally. And their argument was, well, you know, to do it legally would create an unreasonable obligation. Give me a break. Unreasonable to protect people's privacy. It's, it's just outrageous. So that has literally been shut down, thanks to the commissioner. And hopefully this will be a clear indication to others that this is not the way to go. Uh, this is, again, the same company that uh, got called out for using this facial recognition 
or it was being used in some Cadillac Fairview properties, which is a property yeah. where I'm sitting right now in the mall below, <laughs> which was a bit of an eye-opener when uh, we found out about that. Uh, they stopped doing that. But is it more intrusive? I mean, all of it, I think, doesn't sit well with people that you, you don't realize you've gone up to see where a certain store is and your face has been scanned. Is it more yeah. intrusive that we're talking about law enforcement and we don't know exactly why law enforcement is taking or what they're doing with all of this information? I think you're right uh, that it is more intrusive because law enforcement, you literally don't know where this is going to end. They have access to all of these facial images that were, you know, used for lawful purposes. And then now it's being used in in a legal way. But the RCMP have enormous power and they can use it for a variety of other law enforcement purposes that were never, that was never intended for. So I'm delighted. Yes, the Cadillac Fairview story is where it started. Um, and they stopped doing that there as well. But I'm delighted that this has now been extended to the RCMP so they know very clearly you can no longer do this. It is against the law. And they, they stopped it, thank God, because they have to. But we have to be on top of this all the time, that in, personal information collected for one purpose is used for another part, third party by its uh, unauthorized purpose by a third party, and we're not even aware of it. Uh, would something like this too, even so if the RCMP have been collecting this and they've been scraping these images and collecting this or keeping a database, if it was then somehow used in an investigation or used to make an arrest, wouldn't it kind of fall apart if it was collected illegally and it violated privacy laws? Doesn't that raise a whole bunch of other issues? Theoretically, Jill, it does. But people may not even know how they, the RCMP collected their information in the first place and somehow it led to them and they don't know what's going on unless they've got a good lawyer who will dig deep to find out exactly how it took place. They may not even be aware of it. Uh, we hear about this kind of thing in other countries, uh, facial recognition being used, uh, people being picked out uh, pre-pandemic, being picked out, say, of a crowd of thousands of people at a concert or some other kind of gathering. Yeah. Uh, how, how concerned should we be that while it is accepted and it is used in some other countries, uh, how concerned should we be about this creeping into Canada? We have to say absolutely not. We have to put our foot down, and that's what the commissioner has done. You cannot do this. This is completely against the law. It is against the Privacy Act in Canada, and it violates people's privacy enormously. So I can't repeat this enough. It is completely unacceptable, and there's no way to say, well, but, you know, it it creates, as RCMP said, it creates an unreasonable obligation. That's nonsense. Following the law is not an unreasonable obligation. Protecting people's privacy is not unreasonable. You have to do that. Uh, what about the argument, and I'm not making this argument, but I hear people put this out as uh, an argument to this quite often, in that we've, we've given up our privacy and that any given day we walk by several ATMs that are capturing images. We walk by cameras that are on the streets. We walk by intersection cameras and we are, our images caught so many more times than we would ever know. What about that argument that is sometimes made that we've kind of given up our privacy anyway? We haven't. We've never given up our privacy. That's not to say that there isn't more and more surveillance taking place, but it's like a chess game, point, counterpoint. Surveillance moves forward, and then it moves back. The law kicks in. So we have to remain vigilant to protect privacy wherever we can. And this, for God's sake, law enforcement, RCMP, using unauthorized means that violate our privacy, how can that possibly be acceptable? 
It's not. And that's how we have to say no to this. And also what people aren't aware of is there are more and more sources of privacy protective measures that are growing. There's something called the, the Decentralized Identity Foundation, consisting of the major players, Microsoft, Intel, HP. I mean, there's a lot taking place to protect your privacy as well. So this will be ongoing for a long time. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but we always have to push back whenever we can. And this is one of the best situations where clearly the RCMP broke the law and they've been called on it. You use the word surveillance, which uh, interesting as well, the difference between surveillance and kind of passive collecting of information. And again, might go with if you walk by a camera, you might see it there, you might not, you might know if your image was captured or not. But surveillance seems very different. And we're talking about this particular case with Clearview AI. I know in the past, we've talked about law enforcement using Stingray devices uh, to surveil people. And that's been called into question as well. Uh, Do we do we kind of muddle those two or do we need to make sure we're, we're talking about to th- the difference between simply being caught on camera and being surveilled? As the commissioner said in his interview, um, it, Clearview AI technology results in mass surveillance. There's no question. It's not happening just incidentally. Uh, your image is being caught as you walk down the street. This is an intentional data capture of 3.3 billion facial images it's clearly surveillance. There's no question. And these are the things when we learn about them, we have to stop. So let there be no question. This is surveillance. It has to close. And the thing is, unfortunately, with facial recognition, the false positives with facial recognition in terms of matching them to actual individuals are outrageous. The UK has um, surveillance cameras everywhere uh, and just millions of them. And there they did a study. 81% 81% of the facial matches were, were inaccurate. They were wrong. 81% false positives. So let's not get carried away by somehow the magic of this. It's not. It creates a lot of heartache and error. All right, Anne Kavukian, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. My pleasure as always. Thank you, Jill. Well, we've talked a lot about restaurants on this program. When they were closed in the beginning of the pandemic, they came back, as you likely know, with reduced capacity and safety protocols, and then closed to the indoor dining as part of the circuit breaker. That, too, has reopened. But restaurants in many areas are looking a little different. And it was this post that I saw on social media that got us thinking, maybe we should re-address this on the show today. I want to share this post. It was from a chef in the Okanagan. And it starts with friends. I need a miracle. Things keep going from bad to worse for staffing. I'm willing to work a lot for my business and my kitchen and my team, but I can't make any more sacrifices. And I don't want to ask more of the staff that I do have. I need a junior Sue and more line cooks. If you know anybody, please put them in contact with me. I hate to sound desperate, but I am. That's just one restaurant, one scenario. So we wanted to get a bit of a bigger picture, find out how widespread this lack of staff is and what that could mean for the future of restaurants in BC. Imad Yakub is the owner of the Global Restaurant Group. That's restaurants such as Black and Blue, uh, Coast, Global, the Trattorias, Roof, Nosh, Italian Kitchen. Uh, Joining me on the line now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for taking some time. Oh, it's a pleasure. How are you? Very well. How about you? I'm great. <laughs> Excellent. I'm, 
under the circumstances. Exactly. You own several restaurants, as I just listed off some of them there. How is it going as far as staffing and bringing people back and finding enough staff for restaurants? Well, with like uh, last interview I did, that was a week and a half ago, where I said I could probably hire 100 people on that day. Now I'm down to about maybe 80 people today. I could hire 80 people today to just get the company running. Hmm. So you found 20 people. I found 20 people. <laughs> Which uh, sounds like it's not enough. Are, are these all types of positions or what is most, is what do you need most? The board. This is cross the board. This is cross the board. This is cooks. This is waiters. This is uh, lots of... Uh, lots of Lots of um, uh, lots of like supporting staff. You see, well, what's normally is is uh, because lots of students they're coming in on a working visa. Mm-hmm. Most these people, most these people, they get twenty hours worth of work. So all the schools they're not accepting any international uh, any international students anymore. So all the ones that develop all these uh, casual labor, they becoming like bussers, uh, food runners, only working two days a week. All this disappeared. So you took a big, huge chunk of the workforce uh, out. So we're hoping, you know, when schools open again and all these international students coming in and get their, uh, their uh, 20 hours worth of work, that give them the chances or at least give us the chances to find, to find uh, uh, more staff. So with that kind of portion of the workforce not here, people that would only want to work a couple of days or 20 hours a week, are you now, have you kind of put those positions together? Are you able to offer people that maybe want more hours or are you still looking for people? No, no, no. no. Everybody's working on a maximum hours. I mean, the thing is, is it's not about, oh, I have three part-time, I'm going to give a full-timer. Friday night, you need uh, 60 staff on the floor. Right. So you need 60 staff on the floor. You know what I mean? Uh, Sunday night, you only need 25. So that's the reason that some of these part-timers fit very, very, very well for us. Has it had caused you to change what you're offering as far as wages or compensation or anything like that? We, we, we raised everybody's, we raised everybody's, we raised everybody. We give the kitchen about 20%. We give the, uh, the kitchen staff about 20%. Uh, minimum of raise uh, to just trying to not just to uh, you know when the minimum wage went out for the waiters we we looked at all our back of the house staff and then we decided that okay if if our uh, uh, waiters uh, were their tip making they already went up to the fifteen dollars anybody that's nineteen eighteen twenty they have to go up right so we we end up uh, we end up putting out raise to everybody in the company. So if you're still in a position, though, where you could write today, hire 80 people, what does that mean as far as as more capacity comes back as we reopen and being able to run the restaurants? But that's, you know, we take decisions like we're not going to open the second floor uh, today, example. So that means people could come into a restaurant uh, and uh, some of our restaurants have two floors. And we said, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I have a waiting list, even that half my restaurant is sitting empty because I don't have staff to serve. Hmm. Uh, have you found customers are pretty understanding of uh, when they see that or, or questioning it? Well, <laughs> customer always question. They'll say, well, what do you mean you can't seat me? I see empty tables. Right. Well, I understand that, sir, but uh, I don't have waiters to serve you. 
come on, you could do a miracle, Imad. And, and, and so many times we have to take these decisions. I prefer uh, to tell people, no, I have about 45 minutes wait and end up being the customer being upset for lack of great service. Right, because you got to think that that would be the same person if they're getting mad that they're seeing to empty tables. You've seat them at a table yeah. if the service, if it takes longer because you're short-staffed, they're going to start complaining yeah. about the service as well. Exactly. It's a, it's a cycle. It's like a, going round and round and round and round. You know, you don't get enough staff. You can't give them good uh, service. You, uh, you, you don't have enough guys in the kitchen. You can't do the volume. It's a round and round. I mean, it's, it is a big, huge problem. But I think the solution for it is three ways. I mean, I, uh, I, I've been telling lots of people, if anybody could listen, I said one of them is, of course, the international student. That's number one. Number two, all the, the international visa or the, the working permits, that there's lots of the staff that were on work permits. Two years ago, they end up leaving because there was no work. And uh, the way is, if you can't guarantee them full-time jobs, you have to send them home. Mm. So there's lots of people went home, and they're all ready to come back. But their paperwork could take eight months to a year to bring them back. So the, the federal government have to speed up that. Like, it, it, it really have to speed up that. Um, the, 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 thir- the third part, uh, uh, allowing restaurant to apply for more visas, more working visas. Uh, that's, that's it. Like, it's, it takes time. Like, like, for me, I always, when I'm talking to my, my HR department, we're applying for working permit right now for and, mid-2022. Like any person we're applying for right now, we think that by the time they're coming in, will be mid-22. Hmm. Yeah, that's, and, and that's still, that certainly doesn't help you in the short term. No, of course not. Of course not. Because by the time we're going in a full capacity, I need another 200 staff. So that's 280 staff. Is it also, you mentioned a big chunk of this are international students or people that could come here on work permits. Uh, I, I understand from, from reading about this and seeing other scenarios that it was different after the first shutdown when restaurants were closed and opened up again. And it's different now with the circuit breaker. There are more people that have moved on. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, what happened was there's lots of people left in the industry. You know, it was all the shut and open, shut and open, shut and open massive amount of people left the industry. So trying to convince them to come back, it's going to be a lot harder. The second part, there is lots of people are on, they're just still on, on the SERP. And the, the federal government have to find a way to bring them off the SERP. Uh, maybe uh, uh, telling them that, you know, uh, we're, going to drop the, we're going to drop it down by 25% uh, uh, every two weeks, uh, the, the payment. So these guys will be more... Uh, you know what, looking for a reason to come off CERT. The second part, maybe offering the, the businesses, say, on every brand new hire starting from uh, uh, August 1st, we'll give you an extra 10% on, uh, on, uh, on the, the labors that they were doing, like they're helping all small business with. Give the reason for people to hire more, give the reason to come, for people to come off SERP, then we'll bring back everybody to the workforce. I think it'll be, in the end of the day, it will be good for everybody. It sounds I mean, like... They're, they're, they're predicting 6.5% growth in the economy, of the Canadian economy. You don't have staff to, to do that. There is no way that there's staff for the 6.5%. Do you see it impacting or, or making a difference then? What will customers see other than perhaps a lack of staff? Is we, are we also going to see, do you think, prices go up or what oh, other yeah. changes? Yeah, 100%, 100%. We had no choice, but every time the minimum wage go up, because we, we live on a very 
slim. People don't realize the reason the restaurants always go down. Restaurant business live on a on a between three to five percent profit uh, line. Every single time when you get a bad month, it suck all this profit that you made the, the two months before. So when the minimum wage go up by about fifty cent or sixty cent uh, on a on a on a part of the business with it's thirty five percent of your uh, of your uh, of your cost is payroll. You're talking about a humongous number of costing. Like uh, the the minimum wage will cost our company, example, about seven hundred and fifty thousand hmm. dollars a year. Well, that seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, it has to come out from somewhere. So we have to raise the price because we're already running on a three percent. You know what I mean? Three to five percent. So pricing will will go up definitely everywhere. All right. Well, Imad, we'll check back with you again. And like you said, you could hire 80 people on the spot today and that number is going to keep going up. Thanks for taking some time out of your day to to chat with us. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Well, yesterday, as you know, the federal government announced fully vaccinated Canadians as well as permanent residents flying back to Canada will soon, we think it'll happen around the first week of July, will soon not have to self-isolate for the 14 days. They won't have to go to a government-approved COVID hotel. They will have to have a negative COVID-19 test. And that is being received as very good news by many. But there's still a lot of questions about travel in general. Joining me right Right now to talk more about that is Claire Newell, president and founder of Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon. I have to tell you, I I did the happy dance. I actually have to admit, I kind of cried. I guess it's a bit of relief, like happy tears. It's just been such a rough 16 months and and working in the travel industry. It's just been like nasty, actually. And just the, the start of restrictions, you know, being mentioned of easing is is a bit of a weight lifted off. Um, but I want to be really clear, Jill, you know, the current advisory for us as Canadians is still at a level three to avoid non-essential travel outside of Canada. And you were right. You hit the nail on the head. This is just currently being considered. But it appears that it's essentially a go for early July. We'll just wait for those details. But I do like the way that it's coming. It's it's gradual phases, slow and cautious versus, you know, fast and having outbreaks. Um, But this is um, really a a big step in the right direction. But it is not for regular tourists or business travelers. This is, like you said, people returning to Canada with the current right to enter. So Canadian citizens, PRs, essential workers, foreign students, all those people on that uh, approved list. And I think what they will have to do when they come back is likely our new normal for the foreseeable future. So, you know, how what they have to do is that they'll need to take a COVID test pre and post arrival into Canada. So, but they will be allowed to quarantine at home until they get a negative result. So I'm guessing that could be anywhere between 24 and 72 hours. Um, but they also still have to present a quarantine plan to officials using the Arrive Can app. If you haven't used it, you may want to download it onto your smartphone just so you can be familiar with it. Because when it does open, which will be the next step for regular travelers, and I think it's going to be once we hit that 75% vaccination mark, um, it will be our new normal. You know, you're not just going to have just have nothing. 
All right. A lot of questions, though, and I think that that part is clear, although we're still waiting, like you said, for to figure out exactly what's going to be happening in the beginning of July. A, a couple of questions that I'm getting from people are one children. What if you're coming back? You're you're all Canadian citizens or permanent residents, but you're traveling with people who are under the age of 12 who aren't getting vaccinated anyway. At this point, do they have a different quarantine plan than the adults? Likely not. They'll likely um, be able to do whatever their parents will be doing, but they will be going through that testing as well. Um, so that that at-home period, what, so you're waiting for the, the test, um, everyone will likely be tested. The, you know, right now, the, um, the all of this is being lifted for people who are fully vaccinated with Health Canada vaccine approved vaccines. Um, that are done and you're fully vaccinated within 14 days prior to entering back into Canada. So, you know, like you say, kids can't, but they will likely be able to do what their parents do and do testing once, you know, before they uh, get on the plane and then once they land. All right. And one of the other questions also has been for, say, spouses, where uh, maybe they live in the United States. One is Canadian, one's American. They're coming back. The Canadian people questioning, would they have a different plan than as far as they're both fully vaccinated? Would the Canadian residents then not have to quarantine? But would the spouse who's American have to quarantine? Yeah, that's interesting. We don't have the fine details on that because right now what they've announced is that um, it only applies to returning Canadians or the people that are on that list. It isn't open to international travelers and that U.S. citizen is considered a, a an international traveler. So they are still working out the details, but likely once they start to open, it will be similar to what the EU has done. You know, have a vaccination certification system. We know that they're still working on that. Um, and I think it's baby steps. They're going to test the systems of what they've got for the people coming back, and then they will gradually open it up. Um, just only yesterday, the U.S. CDC opened up the number of countries that are um, different levels, one, two, and three, because they, you know, late prior to this, everything was at a avoid non-essential travel outside of the States, just like we have here in Canada. And so it's not going to be removing that blanket we had come over all travel March 13th of 2020. It's going to be looking at each different country and deciding at what level of risk and then opening it up. So the likes of Australia and New Zealand will be on that list, but they're not going to let us in um, for a while. But the, the EU, the U.S., um, places where the vaccines are being administered and the infection rates are low. So places like Asia that have higher um, incidence at, uh, or of infection at the moment will likely not get a level where we as Canadians can travel to them until they get that all in order. All right. What about traveling within Canada? Uh, it's never technically been banned, although some provinces have had their own quarantine rules. But I'm getting a lot of email questions about booking travel within Canada and whether or not that's something that you would recommend or you're seeing people do. Well, I personally have done it for my own kids. I, uh, first of all, the rates domestically to fly um, are so, so, so cheap. And I expect that when demand starts to increase you know, people taking advantage of these very, very cheap rates, the demand will increase, but then so too will the rate. So I expect them to jump. But if you are like me and have, you know, kids that are going to university, the July 1st deadline for, for here in BC for 
um, for us to be able to travel outside of our province is looking promising, just like that June 15th travel within our own province is looking very promising. It's still fluid, um, but I wanted to for example, book my son back to go back east for university. And it was $114 plus tax one way to Toronto. <laughs> so like I couldn't not do that. But I made sure that I could change it. I had I looked for something with flexible terms and conditions. So um, you want to make sure that you do that moving forward. And that, that wouldn't just be for something domestic. It would be for something internationally as well. Because there are a lot of deals for those people who are willing to put down a Usually it's a really low deposit. I mean, the director of finance in our office just yesterday booked something for December the 4th and put $50 down for for Mexican (laughs) all-inclusive. So, you know, you just want to make sure that if you see a rate that you think is amazing and you want to take advantage of the cheap things that are out there, like I did for my son to fly to Toronto in early September, just make sure flexible terms and conditions. We just don't know. This is a very fluid situation and everyone's kind of been burned if you know what I mean. So, right. Although there, I mean, there is no travel ban. You need to be careful and get, know what you're getting into and, and check if the province you're going to has any rules, but it's not like there's any ban or there's anything that you need to worry about as far as quarantining when you come back to BC. That's correct. But like say, say Newfoundland just last week, they put out uh, their plan. And when they do start to allow people back, which I believe is sometime in July, people who are fully vaccinated will not need to test or quarantine single dose will have to have a test or bring a negative PCR test. Um, so it, it look at not just within, you know, within our own provinces, but, um, the Atlantic bubble is very different. And I do expect that um, the other provinces, much like Newfoundland Labrador, will do something similar. Um, but there is something that you can look at. It's a destination tracker that was put up by IATA, as well as the United Nations World Tourism Organization. And it, because things are so fluid, things are literally changing every day. We saw Spain, they opened up um, to UK, well, like the, the UK was on kind of, Spain was on their safe list. Tons of Brits went to travel. And then all of a sudden, oh, it, ha- it was taken off and they had to, you know, get themselves home. This is going to be the norm. So Destination Tracker is really worth looking at. It looks at all of the infection rates, um, what you need to do once you get there, before you get there, what testing, what quarantine, um, all sorts of different things. But I think it's it's on both of the websites, IATA as well as the UNWTO. All right. And a couple of other questions. Just people wondering about tourists and people flying into uh, Canada, a tourist, maybe that they don't fit into the rules, the, what was announced yesterday. Do you have any sense on when that might be relaxed or do we know? Yeah. Well, I don't. I, my, my best guess would that it would be late July, but it is going to be coming quite soon after. I think they want to work the bugs out. There's a lot of things that need to be tested and tried. And um, I think that the Canadian government is is very aware that people want a plan. Um, they need a plan. Uh, the airlines need a plan. And what we're seeing right now is this big booking buzz. And that kind of really began a couple of months ago, but it really kicked into high gear yesterday. And the airlines, the tour operators, the travel agencies, they're still staffing up. So there's really long hold times. And for many places, you know, people who are really hopeful that they can take their family to Anaheim in August, well, the, the flights, there's not a lot of flights added yet. The airlines have had 95% of their flights grounded. So we're going to see that added um, in the coming weeks. But I can tell you what is popular right now uh, and dates are filling 
and the rates are going up is winter and spring break. So winter break of this year and spring break of next, because we've had missed, missed two spring breaks. You know, March 13th of 2020 ended all travel. So that spring break and this past that we've just passed, and then the, the winter break, so many families are pigeonholed to those dates, and they're popular, and we're all, we're seeing a lot of space being taken up by destination weddings that are getting back on the agenda, and um, multi-generational trips are being, you know, seats, blocks of 30 at a time. Hmm. Um, so the demand is certainly there. We're seeing it. All right. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon, but thanks for your time today. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. We're going to talk a little bit now about a request, a formal notice given to the province of BC from the Squamish Nation. This has to do with deferring old growth logging for two years in part of BC. This coming on the heels of another announcement you'll recall yesterday from the Premier talking about a deferral in a different part of the province. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Hull Selam, Squamish Nation councillor as well as spokesperson. Thank you so much for being with us for joining the show today thank you Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about this request or the notice that's been given to the province what specific part of the province are we talking about and what is the request the Swamish Nation has identified about 20 cut blocks within our territory which covers uh, a number of regions but most or all of them are within 150 kilometers of the city of Vancouver some are within the House Sound, some are around the town of Squamish, um, but very close to Vancouver. Uh, these are the last uh, old growth stands that exist in our territory. Out of all the old growth that once existed in our ter- territory, only 2% remain, and uh, 56% of it is still unprotected. And so the Squamish Nation is calling for a moratorium on old growth logging within our territory and calling on the province to grant immediate deferrals uh, of any old growth in these areas to allow for our nation to regain control over the long-term sustainable management of these forests. And would that long-term management involve logging or would that be part of it? Well, the Squamish Nation is unique. Um, We have our own logging operation. Uh, Over a decade ago, we purchased a tree farm license from Interfor uh, and we've been developing our own logging business. Um, But as stewards of the land, we'd also see the importance of developing sustainable logging practices. And so when we purchased the TSL, we immediately uh, removed any old growth areas from the logging operations and have focused on sustainable logging in other areas with second growth and first growth. So we definitely think that there's a way to build a local economy, uh, a sustainable economy uh, with our natural resources, but we don't believe that the logging of our old growth can continue, uh, given that once they are logged, uh, they'll never be back again. Right. So would this then, uh, the deferral, if it was put in place for two years and then the Squamish Nation going ahead with with your plan, uh, would your plan then have have zero logging when we're talking about the old growth part of the forest? Yes. Uh, In our uh, land use plan that was developed by our elders and our cultural leaders many years ago and back in 2001, old growth was identified as an area that has significant cultural and ecological value for our people. So our intent has been to protect old growth logging within our territory. Uh, what do you say then to, I think the Premier yesterday had said that yes, conversations were, were going and that he expected there would be more to say on this in the summer. Is that, is that soon enough or is that, is that action being taken uh, in a timely way uh, enough for you? I think one of the challenges is that in many parts of the territory outside of the areas that were announced yesterday, there's still potential old growth logging happening uh, right now in the next few weeks. 
Um, the province has had a significant amount of time to act on this, and I'm worried that the premier is only uh, acting in response to the controversy and using First Nations as political cover. What we are not seeing is a meaningful respect for uh, the Indigenous rights of Indigenous people on the ground. There's many other First Nations that have asked for uh, deferrals, um, and so we're going to continue to um, lobby and advocate for our forests. Right. So do you think we'd be having this conversation then if what happened in, in Ferry Creek and that decision, that announcement that came out, if that hadn't happened? Yeah, I think this, we've been trying to work on uh, old growth protection for many, many years and, and even in the last year. Um, but it's been difficult to get any response from the government uh, up until this point. Is there a conversation to be had as well? And and I'm not taking this this uh, this part of the the discussion, but I have heard this this part put forward uh, in the past. And I'm wondering if even within the Squamish Nation, these discussions are taking place in that on the one hand, like you said, there are cultural reasons and bigger reasons to keep old growth forests, to not log any of them. But then there is also sometimes the argument made that all trees at some point die and a tree, say, that's 200 years old uh, is worth hundreds of thousands or thousands up to a hundred thousand dollars and that there is an economic argument to be made as to why that tree could and in some cases should be logged yeah no there's definitely a good conversation there and you bring up a really valid point one of them is that we do um, our own harvesting at times within old growth areas for say cultural or spiritual purposes you know we build our our sort of our longhouses for example in our community which is our place that we practice our sort of spiritual uh, and cultural traditions. You know, for the rest of the world, they might understand it like a church or, or a synagogue or a mosque. You know, we build longhouses in our culture where we practice our spiritual beliefs, and they're built out of cedar, for example. So there are times when we might go into an old growth area and selectively log uh, for, for specific uh, cultural purposes. Um, or there might be situations where um, there have been, you know, um, uh, avalanches or uh, fallen trees from from strong winds, things like that, or age, uh, and we do think that there is you know the potential for sustainable logging. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what's really needed is First Nations to really have control over uh, their resources within their territory. Right, because I mean they are beautiful. Nobody would dispute that old growth forests are absolutely stunning and beautiful. But I, I think sometimes the that other part of the conversation gets a bit lost. Yeah, it's it. You know, it, there's a there's a lot of work to be done um, on this. It, I think there's a lot of opportunities as well for uh, First Nations and for the general public to benefit from the future of old growth. Um, you know, the, the selective logging is one. There's also tourism opportunities and others. Um, and I think that that right now, uh, many First Nations are asking for uh, support to be able to to really map out what those opportunities are and to create a, a much more sustainable economy around these things. Uh, when you mentioned as well that there are currently 20 cut blocks in place and that now there is this request for the deferral, uh, do you know what that means for the cut blocks or, or are we talking about a scenario with compensation or is that a conversation for another day? Uh, probably a conversation for another day. Um, it, 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 there's, you know, the current legislative uh, requirements uh, and protections. I think the Premier alluded to this yesterday that you know, there is going to potentially be a financial cost um, to, to to protect some of these areas. Um, but it also, I think, is part of the conversation is 
yes, there's a financial cost to divert uh, old growth logging in certain areas, but there's also a financial benefit from uh, maintaining those trees as well. Uh, and again, I, I think you, you touched on this, but when would you like to see a decision on this or, or when do you think would be a suitable time for the province to make a decision or to come to the table and say, yes, okay, we're going to defer this or here's the plan moving forward? Um, there's, I think, an urgent need right now for the Premier to act quickly and swiftly. We've seen the government move quite quickly on, on, on important high-level issues. Um, we've heard a broad commitments around sort of potential more deferrals later on. Um, but uh, this has been a conversation that's been going on since the old growth strategic review uh, issued its recommendations to the province. Over a year ago, the government received those recommendations, and then it was September that those recommendations were made public. So there's been a long time building to this point. And I think uh, because of the pressure and the media attention, the government has now chosen the act. And I think we would call on to continue to act in a, a, a expeditious manner. Uh, do you get the impression, or is it your your thoughts that the government has talked a lot about this, but until very recently, we haven't seen that action? The the sense that I've gotten from government is that they didn't think that this was there was an urgency around it, or that they haven't felt the pressure to. I think after we started seeing an increase in civil disobedience and arrests at the Ferry Creek blockades. I think as we see more and more uh, media coverage and attention on the province, um, they started to take note. And, and it's unfortunate that it has to come to that because I think that they've talked a lot around, you know, uh, a respectful relationship with Indigenous communities. Um, but the rhetoric sometimes doesn't match what we're seeing on the ground. Uh, do you think that this request might also get more attention in that it sometimes is out of sight, out of mind? And we're, we're talking, as you said, off the top, these are these are... These are forests that are within 150 kilometers of some pretty urban, very, very populated areas. When it's right there, when it is literally in people's backyards, do you think it does get more attention? Yeah, it's possible. And I think, you know, a lot of people in Vancouver and the surrounding areas um, have have a, a deep connection to, you know, the land and the, the environment that we all sort of live in here on the coast in B.C. I think um, that connection drives people to care about these things. I think the the ongoing conversation that's happening in the province around old growth, I think also drives this uh, need to, to come out on, you know, from the Squamish nation to come out. Um, but the, this has happened before as well. You know, we go back to the 1990s uh, when the NDP was in power previously, uh, and there were significant fights between environmentalists and logging companies in the province. And so we're seeing a bit of a repeat because the policies the laws, the approach of government didn't substantially change. And I think that that's the paradigm shift that's uh, being called for both in that old growth review that the province has said they'll implement, um, but also I think what First Nations are calling for as well. All right. We'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us and bringing us up to speed on this. We'll be watching to see what happens next. But thanks again so much for your time today. Thank you. Well, June is Pride Month, and for the month of June, Trans Boxing and Hook and Hustle have teamed up for a run club. What does that mean, you might ask? Well, with more on what exactly that is and the goal that the group has put forward, our show contributor, John Jang, is here with Leslie Leithhead, Leithied, and John brings us that report now. 
Good afternoon, Jill. Now, as we know, June is Pride Month, and June also typically provides great weather. Now, both of these things are coming together for what's called the Pride Run Club. It's a new running club launched to promote physical activity and well-being for trans and other gender-variant people who experience barriers accessing organized sports and activities. And if you want to get involved, there are some sweet prizes on a week-to-week basis and... It's as easy as going out for a walk. For more, we are now joined by Leslie Leithied, the owner of Hook & Hustle. It's a BC-based boxing and fitness brand. And Leslie, I understand that your company is playing a big role in the campaign this month. Yeah, so for the month of June, um, my company is partnered with Trans Boxing Organization. They offer programs to transgender and uh, gender variant groups uh, in boxing. But for this month, what we wanted to do just to raise awareness and also uh, to encourage, encourage more movement um, in athletics is we're actually offering a run club in support of this organization. Um, but I think what's really cool about it too is it's virtual. So we're having our members and members from the community kind of everywhere be able to participate by clocking their kilometers um, and then submitting them each week in order to help kind of raise funds and awareness for this organization. I love that. And when you started creating this or coming up with the idea to create this, did you find that it was challenging for trans or gender variant people to get into boxing specifically, maybe because there are uh, rigid foundations in place with a sport like that? Oh, absolutely. Sort of um, the original partnership with Trans Boxing Organization started for us probably in April. We've been supporting their programs through uh, donations of boxing gear uh, for the little last past few months, I guess. Um, but my reason for partnering with them originally is I do have a close family member that is transgender. And even now and through the transitioning, um, we've always acknowledged the barriers to access in sports. Obviously, boxing is kind of my main area of focus. Um, but in all levels of fitness and gyms and sports, especially when we talk about um, a lot require registration, uh, I guess, a gender requirement upon registering. And then when we look into just, you know, change rooms um, and other areas, there there are a lot of barriers, even just on like a day-to-day that a lot of people would not consider. Um, and then boxing is just so, I guess, not male-dominated, domi- but there are a lot of barriers to access there, especially when we have to identify with the gender and sign up often. Yeah, I mean, I think I can understand that. I mean, the way sports is even laid out today, uh, most people are familiar with their, like, for example, we'll take the Olympics, right? And the Olympics are even Mm -hmm. divided into men's competition and women's competition. And it feels like Mm -hmm. while society overall is progressing the way we love to see it, sports is not really catching up as quickly as we would like it to. And so programs like this, I'm sure it's a breath of fresh air for those that are trans or are you know transitioning and have realized there's not a lot of options for me out here, especially if I'm trying to accept who I am and I'm trying to find confidence in this. Yes, absolutely. And I think the thing I love the most about Trans Boxing Organization too is they obviously have the physical and athletic elements, but there are many um, support group offerings, and it is quite a community, and I'm just so inspired by everything that they're doing. Love it. Now, here we are. It's uh, just over the first week of June. If somebody's listening mm-hmm. to this today and, and they're thinking to themselves, well, the first week is already over. Maybe it's too late to get involved. What would you have to say for somebody like that? 
Oh, no, I would say absolutely not. We've actually had so many new signups this week. What we're doing, um, uh, I guess, in terms of registering is you can go to hookandhustle.com, and there is a link there to register. Uh, we're doing weekly giveaways. So for every five kilometers that you track on any uh, tracking app, whether it's running or walking, you can sit up, submit it to us at the end of every week, uh, and then we'll be doing giveaways, and then there will be one grand prize at the end of this month. So I definitely encourage anyone out there listening to sign up and participate. Love it. And, you know, one of the things that we know about this pandemic that we're all living through is that getting outside is one of the safest things you can do. So if you're already somebody who goes on walks or if you're a jogger, a runner, uh, you might as well clock the kilometers like you're talking about and get something out of it, too, knowing that you're helping out a great cause. And I think the best message here, too, Leslie, is that you don't have to do this alone. You can get your friends involved. You can get your family members involved and you can do it together. Absolutely. Yeah, we wanted to make it accessible for everybody, but I know there are a lot of groups that are kind of doing this uh, together, and I think that's great, too. Love it. And finally, Leslie, I was doing a little bit of digging around, and I realized uh, <laughs> you're also a bit of a boxer, and you've got that fight card <laughs> to your credit. So uh, for those that are also maybe interested in learning more about you and Hook and Hustle, where can they find more information <laughs> and maybe some videos of some of the fights that you've been in? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, we have Instagram. It's at Hook and Hustle. Um, if you wanted to find me, I'm at Feed L. Um, and there is definitely a lot of content on both those pages. Love it. Uh, she is Leslie Lethe, the owner of Hook and Hustle, who has partnered with the Trans Boxing Organization and has created the Pride Run Club. And as uh, we mentioned, you can find more details online at hookandhustle.com. Thank you so much for your time and best of luck with this moving forward. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.